The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This episode is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc. administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lantheus Medical Imaging, and Merck & Co. Inc. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational series with this specific podcast titled Treatment Paradigms for Intermediate and High-Risk Non-Muscle Invasive Bladder Cancer. I'm really pleased to have Dr. Max Cates join us today. He's a real thought leader in the field. Dr. Cates is Associate Professor of Urology and Director of the Division of Urologic Oncology at the Brady Urologic Institute of Johns Hopkins. His clinical and research focus is in the realm of bladder cancer, where he seeks to identify novel treatments and identify biomarkers that predict therapeutic and treatment response. So first of all, Max, uh, really big thanks for joining us. Uh, love the fact that we're going to get about 30 minutes to pick your brain, and, and uh, obviously you're well recognized as a thought leader in the field. So really big thanks from the AUA for taking a little bit of time uh, to join us today. Thanks, Jay. It's it's a pleasure to be here, and I, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. Well, maybe just to start it off, before we sort of dive into maybe some of the details, just maybe give our listeners a sense of, you know, what, what are we going to be covering at a, at a high level over the next 30 minutes or so? And then we'll maybe talk about some of these different uh, these different elements in greater detail. Sure. So what we're going to be doing is we're really going to be going over the importance of an individualized treatment decision-making plan and and the importance of shared decision-making in the management of intermediate and high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. We'll also discuss the challenges associated with the BCG shortage, as well as its impact on patient care and treatment decisions. And then we'll also evaluate uh, this exciting landscape of new treatment options for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, and, and this includes chemotherapeutic agents and novel immunotherapies, as well as other uh, treatments. That's great. Well, I, I mean, I think you, you, you started off so nicely because I, I think, you know, to really think about this disease um, and, and the concept of individualizing treatment and shared decision-making, I feel like a lot of that is, is predicated on having some sort of construct to actually talk about non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and and really maybe look at not it as one entity period, but really uh, maybe the concept of uh, risk stratification. So um, talk to us a little bit, first of all, about, you know, the concept of risk stratifying non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, and and then maybe um, some of the factors that play into, you know, what, what puts something into a certain risk strata. Yeah, so so the way we typically think about risk stratification is in low, intermediate, and high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And the the whole idea of risk stratification is understanding 
what are we actually concerned about when a patient comes into our door? We're, we're concerned about a tumor coming back, so recurrence, but we're really concerned about progression, progression to a higher stage where, uh, you know, all of a sudden the, the risks in front of us with this patient are increased risk of bladder cancer mortality and, and bladder cancer morbidity. So, uh, so along those lines, the key components in this risk stratification is number one, going to be the tumor grade. So high grade versus low grade is the clear cut category that's going to separate out uh, a lot of our risk groups. But beyond that, it's things that intuitively we know and the data would confirm uh, increase our risk of recurrence. So uh, having a prior risk, having a prior uh, bladder tumor obviously will increase your risk of having another bladder tumor, having multiple bladder tumors and the size of a bladder tumor. So we take those, those categories and we come up with low, intermediate and high risk bladder cancer. But I'll say that that's really just one facet of risk stratification. There's other facets. So the average age of a bladder cancer patient that walks into my clinic door, and it's probably the same throughout, uh, throughout the United States, is, is 76 years old. And so when we think about the fact that bladder cancer is a, is a disease uh, sometimes of, of the elderly, uh, patients are not uh, always great anesthesia uh, candidates, uh, things, things beyond just their tumor characteristics, risk stratification and shared decision-making comes into, into play as well. No, that's great. I, I think you, you sort of capture the essence of it. And, and I think that the latter point that you made is, is really so important that indeed we do have these risk strata, but then obviously there are certain patient specific factors um, that, that may even govern your management, you know, within a risk strata and, and how you sort of think about uh, the disease. So, I, I mean, you, you kicked it off and, you know, obviously the title of the podcast is, is really looking at treatment paradigms for intermediate and high risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So let's start with the first of these, which is intermediate risk disease. And, and maybe talk a little bit about, um, first of all, what are our options um, to treat intermediate risk disease? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of the other nuances associated with that. Yeah, so uh, intermediate risk disease, which I define as low-grade bladder cancers that are recurrent, uh, or large, less than three centimeters, or are multiple tumors in a bladder. Um, also, small, high-grade, non-invasive uh, tumors, less than three centimeters. And for these patients, the options are uh, increasingly complicated, I'll say, by the BCG shortage. So uh, traditionally in the United States, the standard of care was BCG. And uh, in Europe, it was, it was chemotherapy. Um, and that was true uh, really until the, the BCG shortage started happening, in particular this 2019 BCG shortage, in which uh, at that time the AUA and the SUO came out with a statement basically recommending against uh, delivering BCG for low-grade uh, bladder cancers. And so uh, right now, the standard of care would be uh, intravesical chemotherapy induction or observation um, with repeat fulguration in certain situations. And that is, uh, that's really how we would uh, approach a patient with intermediate risk uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer today. Great, great. So a few practical questions, just as you sort of talk about that. Um, at the time, let's say you have a patient who is uh, uh, perhaps like a frequent flyer, okay? So you, you've seen them for a long time. They have recurrent low-grade disease. 
Um, just uh, practically speaking, when you when you resect these patients, your thoughts on perioperative chemotherapy, um, particularly even if you think this patient's going to get a a course uh, like a full induction course, how do you approach that scenario? Yeah, so so it's my practice in in new. Uh, low-grade non-invasive tumors, as well as recurrent low-grade non-invasive tumors to give perioperative chemotherapy. Um, uh, in, in my practice, it's gemcitabine, although mitomycin uh, C is perfectly reasonable. Um, and the reason that, that I do that is because um, not all of my patients are going to get an induction course of chemotherapy, and I want them to see a treatment. If they're and and the decision about whether to give some somebody an induction course of, of chemotherapy is is one in that you know that I'll that I'll have with patient about risk and benefits. Um, so patients that have overactive bladder have a lot of frequency urgency symptoms are not really going to be able to hold these drugs, and I'm worried about toxicity. They're not going to be ideal candidates for intravesical chemotherapy. And, uh, and so those may be uh, patients that I'll want to observe. And, and so that, it's, that's what I mean by shared decision-making. Uh, but that would be an example with perioperative chemo. Sure, sure. And, and then when you, if we just talk about this intermediate risk group, just to, to go into a little bit of detail regarding um, intravesical chemotherapy, can you just comment a little bit on, on uh, regimens um, that maybe are currently in use, regimens that you use, and, and then maybe to dovetail with that, as you highlighted the BCG shortage, maybe are there trials looking at other uh, therapies or combinations in this space? Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll take one, each one of those and, and try to spend a little bit of time on it. So um, the chemotherapy regimens that are probably most typically used would, the, would be either doublet chemotherapy with gemcitabine and docetaxel. Um, that's typically given 60 to 90 minutes with, uh, with one drug, 60 to 90 minutes with the other, um, and given once a week for six weeks. Uh, and I do monthly maintenance for a year for intermediate risk. Um, other uh, regimens that are uh, also given and, and uh, uh, you know, have some data behind it would be mitomycin, uh, uh, mitomycin C, and single-agent gemcitabine. So I, I think that probably those are the most typically used. Um, as to uh, the second, was there another question before the? Well, that's uh, a good, so, so sort yeah. of um, the the is there anything maybe on the horizon in this? Yeah. So in, okay, in, great. In the yeah. Space. Yeah, there's actually a lot on the horizon. One of the really fascinating things about intermediate risk disease is when you actually look at the way we're going to change treatments. Uh, there's two approaches. So one approach is to try and ablate tumors and uh, reduce or eliminate the need for a TURBT. And that's a really exciting strategy. So, and the idea is not that they'll, I would hope that the that it would be equivalent to a TRBT to ablate these tumors. But if we can reduce the burden of a TRBT in our patient population by ablating these tumors and, and not having to put them, some of these patients under anesthesia, not having to have the sort of the comorbidities, uh, I mean, the complications of a TRBT, I think that would be value added. And then the other way we think about uh, treating these is with uh, TRBT and then giving the drug in an adjuvant setting. And there's also some really exciting trials uh, being evaluated uh, in that space as well. So, so, um, and, and, you know, I think your point's a really good one as you sort of talked about 
the, the concept of some of these ablative treatments, because I, I do think to preface with what you, you, you began with is, you know, the, the, the bladder cancer population is a comorbid population. Uh, they're elderly, they're comorbid, they have uh, medical issues. Many are frankly, as you well know, on blood thinners um, and, and all of these ultimately can play in. And, and it would be interesting to see how some of these techniques and technologies sort of incorporate into, into the algorithm. So um, let's, let's talk about high risk of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And, and um, I guess I'll, I'll start quite simply with uh, maybe two questions, which is, um, First of all, what is, or maybe three questions. Number one, what is high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? Just to give the audience a sense of when we say that term, what, what are we talking about here? Sure. So when we talk about high-risk uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, what we're referring to are three uh sort of categories of this stage. So number one would be CIS. CIS by definition is a high risk feature. Uh, number two would be a high grade non-invasive tumor that's larger than three centimeters or multifocal. Um, and number three would be a high grade T1 tumor. So invading the lamina propria. And those together would be sort of high risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So we're, we're going to spend some time talking about um, um, BCG and, and other agents, but maybe even before we get into that, maybe just Max, in your practice, practically speaking, um, you know, we always talk about the earlier, the immediate cystectomy. These patients that you say, wow, you know, um, trying to keep their bladder in place, even though it may be a meritorious effort, really may end up with an adverse outcome at the end of the day. And, and maybe we need to bite the bullet and just go ahead with a cystectomy. In your practice, and I know everyone's a little bit different, but in your practice, um, you know, where does the role of early cystectomy fall in and, and who maybe are, are these patients for you? Yes, it's such a great question, Jay. And and it's it's a conversation I have many times a week with patients. Uh, so, so in my mind, there are two categories of patients that um, where an early cystectomy makes sense. The first is in particularly high-risk features. Um, so particularly high-risk features in, in my book would be uh, high-grade T1 tumors where I'm going to either need to do a staged resection, uh, it's, there's, it's so multifocal or so large or uh, or I'm going to do a very long resection. Uh, and so uh, the reason for that is because the risk of uh, understaging these patients is quite high. And I, I'm very concerned with that. So when a tumor's eight centimeters in T1, or when there's four or five T1 separate tumors in the bladder. Uh, and then the next, the other high risk feature would be variant histology. So uh, the variant histology patients that kind of keep me up at night with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, and they're rare, but they exist, would be sarcomatoid or plasmacytoid uh, histologies in particular, uh, depending also micropapillary. Um, and those would be patients um, that I would, uh, you know, strongly consider a, an early cystectomy. And then the separate category of patients, the patient factors. So if a patient has a high-grade invasive bladder cancer, and they are, you know, they've had radiation and, and they're incontinent at night and they're miserable, then I ask the patient, is this a bladder that, that is worth keeping? Um, because the risks are, are, are not negligible for doing a bladder preserving therapy. And so those would be the two groups uh, of patients that I would strongly consider an early cystectomy. 
That's great. No, I mean, it, it's really helpful to hear that. And then uh, I, I feel like this is a, a one of these discussions where, uh, as you said, you outlined really clearly the, these key factors where, I don't know, your, your spidey sense is going off that, uh, you, that these folks are better served uh, right out of the gate, maybe getting something that may seem more aggressive, but may at the end of the day, uh, be the best thing for for their disease. So let's talk about um, maybe the the scenarios that are not that right, the ones that are not the early cystectomy, but but those where you you really are thinking that um, uh, you know, bladder preservation and, and intravesical therapies may be an option for their high risk disease. And, and so my first question for you is: um, Is BCG still the standard of care for for this population? Absolutely, Jay. So, so BCG is is the standard of care, and um, it's very interesting. D despite the BCG shortage, we actually have data over the last five years that shows that BCG works pretty well. Um, there's a, a trial called the Nimbus study uh, that was out of Europe uh, about three years ago, and it, it showed that in some patients. Uh, the one-year efficacy of BCG when given in its full strength and its regular schedule can be upwards of 80% and even higher. So uh, it is the standard of care uh, until proven otherwise. So so what happens if, um, you, I mean, and we've sort of alluded to this or you've alluded to it, um, the, the BCG shortage. So um, what, what do we do if BCG is the standard of care, but we don't have BCG. And and how do we um, how do we sort of address that scenario? Yeah. So so uh, this is a, a difficult question. All of us are are facing some version of this or have and and. Uh, there's two types. Uh, there's there's many different scenarios, but some institutions have no BCG, and we can talk about what to do in that situation. But uh, many institutions need to ration BCG. So how do you ration BCG? Is also, uh, you know, I don't think that there is an, a right way to do it. Um, I'll tell you uh, that what what I do in my practice is um, I uh, reserve BCG for those patients with. Uh, high-risk uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Thankfully, um, all patients in that in that category so far since 2019 have been able to receive BCG. But I do give BCG at split dosing, so one-third dosing. Um, and there's some data uh, that we're putting together, and there's there's a paper out of MD Anderson that suggests that uh, having uh, split dosing uh, in that kind of style um, has equivalent outcomes, but you know that data is retrospective. Um, other institutions uh, will reserve BCG uh, just for those patients with high-grade T1 bladder cancer, and everyone else, uh, you know, the CIS patients and high-grade non-invasive patients uh, would receive, you know, something else. So, uh, you know, there's no there's no right way to do it, but those are some of the strategies that have been employed. And then may maybe my follow-up question to that is: most of what you just described here would be. Uh, in the primary induction setting. So uh, maybe comment a little bit, um, um, are you able to do maintenance? Um, have you modified your maintenance regimen um, and have you prioritized um, high-risk non-muscle invasive induction uh, and making sure you have enough? And then, and so maybe talk about how the maintenance falls into this whole equation with the shortage. 
Yeah, so we have been able to do maintenance. Um, uh, we do everything at split dosing again. So we bring in three patients at a time uh, and, and that's been how we've, we've done that. Um, I think that uh, there are other institutions that do not do maintenance or do one course of maintenance and then uh, we'll do a reinduction in the setting of, of for example, CIS or high-grade TA recurrence. Um, but I, I think that uh, it's reasonable, it's a reasonable strategy to limit maintenance to say uh, two years, certainly, uh, and some, you know, one year. I mean, none of this is ideal, but mm -hmm. at, at the same time, we want to be able to treat patients effectively. You know, one of the one of the real challenges with the BCG shortage is there's data that's come out that suggests that patients uh, who don't receive uh, an induction therapy in a timely manner, they do worse. So I think the, the, the goal should be to get patients induction, get them drug as soon as possible and not uh, not use those vials for maintenance as much if, if you're truly rationing to that extent. No, that's great. That's, that's great. So I, I think you, you've really highlighted quite clearly that, that um, when you don't have one of these scenarios, obviously when we're thinking about early cystectomy, um, that obviously uh, BCG is paramount um, in, in this patient population. So um, maybe first talk to us a little bit about what does it mean when a patient is BCG unresponsive? So you, what, what, what is that definition? And I feel like that's important because we're going to be talking some stuff about some other uh, treatments and therapies, but, but it's all predicated on understanding uh, what a, a non-responder or someone who is unresponsive. So what, what is someone who's unresponsive to BCG? What does that mean? So the whole idea of BCG unresponsive uh, disease was really uh, an FDA definition for uh, figuring out when patients have had enough BCG and should go, to, go on to a clinical trial. And the idea there is that sometimes patients may not respond to an induction course of BCG, but, but they then may respond to a maintenance course or may respond to a reinduction course. So the way we think about BCG is that they need to have had a, uh, at least five out of six uh, 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 cycles of an, an induction course and then receive uh, two out of three of a maintenance course. Now, the exception is if they have high-grade T1 immediately after their induction course, then we wouldn't give them any more BCG and they would be BCG unresponsive. But by and large, it's having an induction course and a maintenance course. And then if they have a recurrence, we say, okay, you've had adequate BCG, you've had enough BCG, we should do something different. So, so let, let's talk about the, let's talk about the something different. So if somebody is BCG unresponsive and obviously I'm sure there are factors, but, but um, you know, which of these patients should go on to radical cystectomy? We talked about upfront cystectomy. Now we're talking about uh, cystectomy in the setting of BCG unresponsive disease. And, and in which patient should we be thinking about maybe some of the second line uh, intravesical therapies? Sure. So uh, here, the, the principles are actually very similar to the early cystectomy conversation. Uh, so clearly, if there is an invasive high-grade T1 after an induction course of BCG, uh, I will pause and, and evaluate, uh, you know, whether this, uh, this patient would do better with a, with a cystectomy. And I'll have that conversation with the patient. Um, and, and, and this is where the art and science of medicine sort of interplay. Not all T1 
uh, bladder recurrences are the same. Some are, you know, some are a centimeter, some are a four centimeter tumor after mm -hmm. you know you've resected that tumor and given the patient BCG, and, and that's a red flag. So um, I think part of it is is the art of, of taking care of these patients and then having a conversation with the patient uh, about their goals. Uh, some patients are like, oh, well, doc, I want one shot. And if it doesn't work, I want this out. And some patients are like, no matter what, I never want my bladder out. And both of those are valid. And that's, and that's important too. So, um, so that's how I would answer that question. And so let, let's say that you, you really have a patient who um, uh, is, is sort of committed to trying um, second line therapies, intravesical therapies, because uh, they're not one of those folks that said, hey, I'm one and done. And if it's not working, we're going to pivot. What are the, the, or maybe the current standard of care second line treatments for BCG unresponsive non-muscle invasive bladder cancer? Yeah, so the way we think about BCG unresponsive non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is really there's two, there's two categories. There's the patients who have CIS uh, after uh, BCG and there's the patients who have papillary disease after BCG. And the reason that's important is because we have two drugs that have been FDA approved for patients that have CIS after um, after BCG and and that's pembrolizumab and which is a systemic uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor and adstiladrin, which is an intravesical uh, immunotherapy that stim stimulates uh, interferon. So uh, those would be for patients who have recurrent CIS. Uh, for patients who have recurrent CIS and or have, have papillary disease, a very reasonable uh, second line treatment uh, would be intravesical chemotherapy. In my practice, that would be uh, combination chemotherapy with gemcitabine and docetaxel. So you, you sort of highlighted what's maybe the standard of care right now. Um, maybe give us a sense of, you know, what's the future? Are, are there um, uh, new agents that are FDA approved? And, and maybe talk a little bit about that and, and you know, sort of what's on the horizon. So th this is where things get really exciting and where we'll, we'll need to have some follow-up <laughs> podcasts probably, Jay, because this landscape is changing uh, super quickly. So uh, as I said, in the last couple of years, two agents have been FDA approved, uh, pembrolizumab and, and adstiladrin. But there are several uh, drugs that are will be going before the FDA, I imagine, within the next year. And, um, and, and, and there are several drugs that are in uh, sort of late stage trials. And so um, uh, and these include uh, intravesical therapies, uh, novel chemotherapies, uh, immunotherapy. So it's really, uh, it, it's, it's going to be really exciting. The challenge is going to be understanding when to give a patient a second or maybe a third, or do we do a fourth line therapy and when to say the risk of progression is increasing and when is enough is enough. So with new opportunities uh, for our patients, there's going to be new challenges for their urologists. Yeah, and maybe I'll ask you a real practical question, which is obviously um, you're at a tertiary care academic medical center. You have ready access within your facility to medical oncologists who work in the, the general urinary space. I'm in a very similar scenario. And so I, I guess I wonder to myself a little bit that as you look at some of these therapies, particularly those that might be systemic therapies that are coupled with maybe intravesical, it, it seems like uh, urologists either need to develop a greater familiarity and a comfort level with these, 
or uh, frankly, be in an environment where they can partner with a medical oncologist, especially as you're, you're looking at some of these combination therapies where it's not just, you know, intravesical or bust, if, if that makes sense. Maybe your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, to- I completely agree with, with, that, uh, with that comment. The bladder cancer is actually a pretty common disease. And certainly if you're at a, at a place where there's a medical oncologist, uh, you know, right down the hall, uh, like, like where I work, it makes good sense to have them deliver um, immune checkpoint inhibitors, for example. But if these drugs get approved on a much larger scale, um, and they and, and we're talking about treating thousands upon thousands of these patients, then I think we're going to have to to look at whether multidisciplinary care it, it makes sense or whether cross-disciplinary care makes sense. And what I mean by that is it, it may make more sense for urologists to learn how to deliver these drugs mm-hmm. themselves and manage their toxicities from a practical patient-centered standpoint. And so that's going to be a really interesting conversation as we see some of these approvals, uh, you know, come to fore. Yeah, I, I really do think you're right. You know, it's interesting. You know, we've seen iterations of this across other GU malignancies. Uh, I would say prostate is, is obviously further along that, the, that you know, if you look at locally advanced or even metastatic prostate cancer, urologists more and more are managing many elements of systemic disease as we see um, adjuvant indications for advanced kidney cancer. Again, you, you see this space where urologists may take a greater role. And then obviously, I, I think to your point that you made, um, if this denominator of patients turns out to be big, um, I do think the onus is on us. And, and honestly, the patients have a relationship with us. And, and I just don't think there's going to be the bandwidth to have um, our medical oncology colleagues shoulder all of this burden. Of course, I, I think there's going to be a percentage that would would, would clearly benefit. So, uh, Max, maybe I'll finish off with, um, you, you know, when you look at the future um, and you have new therapies out there and, and new agents, um, I, I mean, the, the question is always, you know, cost, uh, uh, toxicity, um, patient outcomes. Um, how, how do you sort of think about all of this? And, and um, do you think that in addition to clinical outcomes, these are going to be key variables that we have to look at as maybe secondary outcomes of studies um, to look at whether they'll, they'll practically uptake it in the community and in practice? Yeah, I, I'm such a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. I think that as excited as I am about these new drugs uh, uh, potentially being approved in the future, what concerns me is uh, is exactly that the the financial toxicity to uh, potentially to our patients. You know, as a urologist, I'm not I'm not really used to that at this point. Um, giving drugs and then having my patients go into debt over that. That's just not something I face on a day-to-day basis. And that will be something I might need to deal with um, with some of these drugs that are, that are being approved. And then, you know, the toxicity of, of some of these drugs is, is, is something that is significant. So when, when we think about, um, you know, uh, hospitalizations being 15% for some, for, for systemic therapy uh, from a grade three uh, AE, you know, that is, um, that's significant. And that's something that we have to look at whether as urologists, we're ready to manage that. I think we are, but you know, it's going to be a little bit of a change. Um, And then, you know, really it's as the paradigm of, of bladder cancer changes and becomes less, uh, less cystectomy, um, then we can't ha- we can't end up having worse outcomes. And what I mean by that is, um, 
if we just run the clock out until patients progress to muscle invasive bladder cancer, we're doing them no service. And so we truly need to understand and uh, when uh, enough is enough. And all of these will be challenges. Uh, definitely more excited than I am uh, nervous, but, but we need to keep both of those things in mind. That's great. No, it's, I think the way you phrase it, it's just a, a really great way, I think, for our listeners to sort of take away the message from, from this episode. Well, Max, um, I, I really do want to thank you. I, I, I think that um, you, you really did a, a phenomenal job sort of distilling down what I think can sometimes be an intimidating landscape for a lot of persons. And, and I, we really do appreciate you taking some time uh, in the late afternoon, early evening to, to join us for this podcast. Thanks, Jay. It was a lot of fun. For our audience, we thank you very much for your time and your attention. Uh, for more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. And uh, Dr. Cates has uh, highlighted a reference uh, that many of you can use if you want to take a deeper dive into some of this content, which is the Bladder Cancer Non-Muscle Invasive AUA Guideline. Uh, Max, I hope you and your family have a really happy holiday and, uh, and a safe one. Uh, I hope to see you soon, uh, hopefully in person. Thanks, Jay. You too.